open our Bibles to the book of Proverbs this morning. We're going to look at a bunch of different passages in Proverbs today. We kind of prepped you for this last week and on the sermon card, but I want us to start our time this morning together by reading a text we've actually already considered, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. I want to revisit that because I think this text serves as the thematic statement for the entire book of Proverbs. So if you don't have a Bible, you can use one of the blue ones from a chair near you, and you'll actually find Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, beginning on page 528. What I think we see in Proverbs is that all of the wisdom speeches, all of the sayings, the individual Proverbs, parables, and riddles, there is this underlying current that we can trace back to its source in these verses. So think of these verses that we'll read in just a moment as a diving board, which we're jumping off of into the second half of the book. So let's revisit Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace They will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now in truth, I've been known to be a bit harsh on Disney princess theology from this pulpit particularly the notion that following your heart is always the best and right decision. Now, let the record show I'm a hypocrite because I come from a Disney family and I could still break into at this very moment any number of classic Disney songs with little or no warm-up. You've got a friend in me that can show you a whole new world where I can't wait to be king and you and I can just let it go. The thread I'm pulling on in this, (laughs) thank you, is to critique this notion that our hearts are the best determiner of our lives, that the impulses of our inner self, the desires we have, are necessarily then the best pattern for our life, no matter what others may say to us, even those who love and care for us. So I've been pretty harsh on that advice, and here's the reality. That advice is wrong in how Disney, and to be honest, the larger world doles it out. Our hearts are not naturally good guides for us, and all of our impulses and desires are not naturally wise yet. The sage of Proverbs would encourage you to follow your heart if your heart is set upon the Lord. And that's where I want to begin to consider this topic of heart 
wisdom this morning? I think the biggest question we need to begin asking is, what is the heart? I think intuitively, many of us have an understanding of what the heart is. But I want to push a bit deeper for a few minutes to cover a bit of ground that we've walked over before. The Old Testament uses the word heart more broadly than many of us naturally think of it. Yes, there are times in the the Old Testament that it refers to the blood pumping organ in our chest. But more generally, when the Bible uses the term heart, it refers to our inner person. I, I wouldn't go wouldn't make an appointment with my cardiologist and go to his office and sit down with him after an examination and say, you know, doc, I have just been feeling heartbroken lately. You got anything for that? He would not be able to answer that question. That's not what heartbroken means. So I think we have a sense that when the scriptures address our hearts, God is speaking about more than just a body part. And I want to be specific this morning to to kind of narrow our focus to how the book of Proverbs speaks about and to our hearts. The Proverbs give us many instructions concerning our hearts. So it's, it's crucial and necessary and important for us to understand what that word means in this book. It does mean the center of your affections and emotions. Like many of us would talk about our hearts. Yet the word lave in Hebrew, and cardia in Greek, have a broader reach than just where you get the feels. So let me offer a bit of explanation from linguists here. First from William Mounts. He writes this, Lave, often translated heart, denotes the seat of emotion, desire, thought, and decision. The Lord repeatedly calls his people to love and trust him with all their hearts, indicating to us that the lave can be divided. In fact, many things can fill or dwell in the lave, including pride, pain, idols, joy, wisdom, and the very word of God. Plans are made in the lave. And it's the place where commitments are determined, kept, or broken. Don't miss that last bit. That last bit's important because Proverbs is going to pick up on that repeatedly. The heart is first when it comes to keeping commandment, commitments or breaking commitments. The heart comes first in getting wisdom or shunning the wisdom of God. Here's another one. While the heart can be used literally for the vital organ, the majority of the use of the term in the Bible treat the heart as the seat of a person's emotions, passions, and thoughts. The heart, this is a great sentence, the heart is the central living, thinking, feeling essence of a person. So when the sage urges us, as we just read, Trust the Lord with all your heart. We can understand, friends, that he's not just talking about our emotions or affections. Rather, he is talking about the very core of who we are, not just what we feel. And it's worth noting that the word lave is translated to English with more than just our English word heart. 
It's translated in Proverbs alone as one's sense or mind or intelligence, even opinion, which occurs in such an interesting example in Proverbs 18.2. We read, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion or his heart. The one who is always expressing their opinion to others with little evidence of listening to anyone else is actually demonstrating their foolishness. Anyone watched social media in the last 10 years? Lots of people living out that proverb in public, even under the banner of Christianity. Another example of the word lay being translated with a different English word occurs in Proverbs 28, 26, which says, Whoever trusts in his own mind, his own lave, is a fool. But he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. It's interesting how the sage connects trusting and thinking in one verse. We ought not to trust ourselves inherently, is what he's saying. And, and think about what we read from Proverbs 3. The way the sage tells us to trust the Lord is with all our heart. A divided heart is not what the Lord desires. Nor will a divided heart ever lead to us actually growing in our skill of godly living. And when our heart is divided particularly as it pertains to the Lord and His church, the division is most often between sin and righteousness. Listen to how Sinclair Ferguson talks about this. He says, People who do anything wholeheartedly usually experience a satisfaction in their activity that is unknown to the half-hearted, whether it be in the sphere of work or play or human relationships, Sin makes us slothful. It brings half-heartedness and indifference to the pursuit of God and sluggishness in the spiritual life. It blights our joy in our supreme relationship. Wholehearted pursuit of Him, that is God, is the only way to have it restored. So, so what am I getting at here, friends? Proverbs calls every one of us to evaluate the orientation of our hearts. We have been saying it much in these series, but it is important because we need to remember, we need the repetition. Wisdom is not first what's in your mind. It's a response to the Lord. It's fearing Yahweh first, which is the orientation of our hearts towards God. Not in terror, that's not what fear means, but in reverence for who he is because of his great love for us. It's not as if the author is saying to you and to me, fix how you feel about God when he tells us to trust him with our hearts. It's not what he's saying. Rather, what he is calling us to is to orient our entire being toward the God who made us, loves us, and has redeemed us. It's to count our lives not as our own possessions, but as belonging to God, such that we find our greatest satisfaction in doing whatever He would tell us for His glory and our joy. 
You see, we could, we could summarize it this way. The basic argument from Proverbs is this. The orientation of your heart determines the direction of your life. The orientation of your heart determines the direction of your life. If your heart is oriented on yourself, foolishness and wickedness will be the outcome of your life. But if our hearts are oriented upon the Lord, wisdom and righteousness will mark our days. Beloved, hear me. How you live flows from what you're banking on. What you do, day in and day out, the decisions you make is built upon what you have placed your heart on. That's what's happening. Your actions always flow from your heart. Jesus told us this in Matthew 15 when he said, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Notice what Jesus is doing there. He's removing confusion that your righteousness is attached by simply doing the right things all the time. And instead he says, no, defilement is is not first your actions, Pharisees. It's your hearts. And this is communicated just as clearly in Proverbs 27, 19, where we read, As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. The heart is like a mirror reflecting what is truly inside of us. So if our lives are defined by folly and sin, those actions reflect what's happening on the inside of us. They are a reflection of our hearts. Now here's the question though. If we want heart wisdom, we understand what a heart is and we understand that God tells us that our greatest satisfaction is only found if we would trust in Him and place our hearts in Him wholeheartedly, that we would be devoted to Him. What do we do if our hearts are not set upon the Lord? I mean, that's the million-dollar question of Proverbs, isn't it? It's the most basic underlying question. What do you do if your heart is not set upon the Lord? Well, let me give you two answers report, you know, uh, excuse me, rooted in two potential realities. <clears throat> Here's the first answer. It could be that your heart is dead to God. It could be that your heart is dead to God. It may be that you don't desire the Lord because you don't actually know Him. You don't fear the Lord because He's unknown to you. Hear me if this is you. God will give you a new heart if you'll go to Him. Listen to this amazing word from God in Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh 
And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Maybe, maybe you've understood that becoming a Christian means adding a new set of rules to your life. No. Becoming a Christian is having a heart transplant by God who removes the hardened and dirty heart and replaces it with a clean one oriented towards him. Wisdom comes to us first by the Lord giving us a new heart. And on this side of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we understand that this new heart was won for us and comes to us through the Savior who died for our sins and rose from the grave to give us new life. This is what Paul is writing about in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And this, and raised, and, excuse me, that's, I can't mess up that part. Let's go again. By grace, you have been saved and been raised up with him. It raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, catch this, it's not something in the past, beloved. Salvation's our hope for future. So that in the coming ages, read eternity, he might show what? The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Oh my goodness. Jesus is not just talking about physical life, right? This is our hearts going from lifeless, dead, to alive. I mean, think about if you've ever watched like a hospital drama or a movie where there's some sort of emergency medical scene. There is a distinct sight and sound that lets you know when a character is dead, right? It's the solid tone and the flat line on the monitor showing the heart has ceased to function. That's what we were. But because of the grace of God, we have been saved and brought to new life. New hearts that beat. So when we are told that Jesus brought us from death to life, we see the fulfillment of the promise of Ezekiel to remove our dead hearts and to give us the gift of a new heart, meaning God has given us new life. You can have this new heart. This new life is available for all who would turn from sin and receive the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. 
If your heart is dead, the Lord can make it alive. If you don't know what that means, or you have questions about that, you can ask me or anyone you've seen up here, and we'd love to tell you more about how Jesus replaces dead hearts with living hearts. But there's a second answer. It could be that you have trusted Christ, but your heart has wandered from God. What do you do if your heart's not fixed upon the Lord? It could be that you have trusted in Christ, but your heart has wandered from God. What happens when we have this new heart, yet we find ourselves still struggling to desire God, His wisdom, and His ways? I mean, isn't there a reason we have hymns with lines like, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's a really sad thing to sing, but we know what it means. Our quest to develop skill in the art of godly living is filled with success and failure. Rivers and deserts, abundance and want. So what do we do when we find our heart is no longer set upon the Lord? We go back to him. We go back to him. It's not that the Lord has strayed from us, but rather we have not kept our hearts fixed upon the God of our salvation. There is hope for you, dear brother and sister, if you feel like your heart is not set upon the Lord. Even the fact that you feel that, your recognition that your heart is not where it needs to be is grace from the Lord calling you back to himself to return and to be refreshed with the, your heart and be refreshed with the truth of God's love for you and his good wisdom for your life. Listen to how the Proverbs describe this. Proverbs 22, verses 17 and 18, we read, Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your heart to my knowledge. For it will be pleasant if you keep them within you if all of them are ready on your lips. Or Proverbs 23, verse 12, apply your heart to instruction and your ear to the words of knowledge. You see, when our hearts wander from Christ, we need to reapply our hearts to the gospel of our salvation or said another way, reapply the gospel of our salvation to our hearts. To remember that we are great sinners, but we have a great Savior in Christ. Maybe you remember the chorus of the song, Our King? Even though our memories may fail us, may we always remember this. We are great sinners, but we have a great Savior in Christ. Applying our heart to wisdom begins by returning to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that our hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We are not hopelessly lost when our desires are low. We, we can return to Christ and to his treasury of wisdom and we can have a heart renewed day by day in the glorious presence of our Savior Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> you see, maybe you caught in those two Proverbs I read just a moment ago that applying your heart to wisdom 
is an action of the ear. It's a discipline of the ear. Again, Sinclair Ferguson, who is always helpful in everything he writes, but he's getting two, two props today. He's so helpful in, in writing this. He says, evil, as does the evil one, listen to this, seeks to deceive by appearances. Eve and Achan and David all listened through their eyes instead of seeing through their ears. As Christians, we need to constantly remind ourselves that God's word teaches us to see with our ears by what we hear in God's word, not through what we're seeing with our eyes. Chew on that one for a while. So then applying our hearts to wisdom is what? It's active obedience by listening first. By listening first. It's returning to the Lord in repentance and confession and devoting ourselves again to hearing God speak to us through his word and seeking to live according to the wisdom of God, trusting him with all our hearts and acknowledging him in all our ways. And we do this in so many ways, don't we, Christians? As his church, we gather every Lord's day to pray and ask the Lord's help to sing songs rooted in Scripture, to hear the Word of God read and explained. We hear the invitation to the supper. Individually, we connect, we devote ourselves to prayerfully reading and studying God's Word. In community, we connect with one another to pray and to share our victories and struggles. In many of our pockets right now, we have devices that can deliver us more God-saturated truth than you will have in time for the rest of your life to ingest. But by the grace of God, we can apply our hearts to His wisdom by taking advantage of all of these opportunities to incline our ears to Him, that we might gain skill in the art of godly living. And you need to remember this, dear church, it is spiritual warfare. To apply our hearts to wisdom is not easy. Nor will it be a one-time battle that you face. Like last week, we do not eat once and never eat again. We daily take a seat at one of two tables. Either at wisdom or the table of folly. We are daily engaged in warfare with our own hearts within us because they still desire folly and the world around us is very enticing and would love to pull our hearts off of the living God. That's why we're told in Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. That word keep carries the weight of protection. You could say it this way, we are to guard or watch over our hearts actively. The Puritan John Flavel said it like, said it like this, by keeping the heart, understand the diligent and constant use and improvement of all holy means and duties to preserve the soul from sin and maintain its sweet and free communion with God. 
That's Puritan language. Probably didn't all hit you really good the first time. So let's read it one more time. John Flavel says this, By keeping the heart, understand the diligent and constant use and improvement of all holy means and duties to preserve the soul from sin and maintain its sweet and free communion with God. Translation, do what God has told us to do to have our hearts set on him. Read his word. Be with other believers. Pursue holiness. And if that sounds like a a new law to you, remind yourself that God's invitation for you and I to feast at the table of his word and to receive from him guidance that will preserve our life in communion with him is not law, it's grace. It is grace that he would give us this. So Christian Hasselflug and I had lunch this week and he told me about a camera in his FedEx truck that alarms and starts talking to him if it sees him without his seatbelt or looking at his delivery device while driving. And we kind of we joked about how annoying that could quickly be. And then we stopped and recognized, what does it say about us that a device that warns us to avoid certain patterns of behavior that could kill us, how could that ever be annoying? But it does, Right? Over, <laughs> over time, our hearts wander such that even the good instruction of God can become frustrating to us when we want folly. But when that happens, brother or sister, remember the warning is grace. Warning us off of the things that will only lead to more brokenness in our life, God is being kind. And that's so evident in the Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 8. The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Or Proverbs 14, 14. The backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways, and a good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. When our hearts are unkept, we fill our lives with folly. And only brokenness follows from an unkept heart. To be sure, brothers and sisters, in this life, we will all face affliction, pain, suffering, and eventually death. But facing those trials with Jesus by our side makes all the difference in the world. There's also another hard reality that the Proverbs give us. And it's probably one of the most striking of the heart Proverbs. We read in Proverbs 19.3, When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. One of the dangers of not applying our hearts to wisdom is that we reap the results of our folly. And worse, our hearts can turn against the Lord in anger when that happens. How ironic that the foolish heart's response to its own folly is to look at God and say, how could you? This isn't new. This is Adam accusing God of failure in the garden when he said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. 
Many times when we are trapped in the consequences of our folly, the last person we want to see at fault for anything is ourselves. The only place we don't want to look is the mirror. Yet the Proverbs force us to take a hard look at our own actions and how our own wickedness and foolishness and unkept heart has led us to pain. Now again, it's important to remember that not all of your pain and my pain is a result of wickedness or folly, yet there are honestly times when we can look at our lives and see the patterns of folly that brought us to where we are. Yet, yet, as long as the Lord Jesus lives, spoiler alert, eternity, we can recognize our folly and train our hearts to return to Him for more grace, for more help, for comfort, even as we eat the bitter fruit of our foolishness. You see, even as we grow in our skill in the art of godly wisdom, we will not be fully wise in this life. We will still face at times the results of our folly. Yet this proverb warns us and it holds us Hope, holds out hope. It warns us off looking at God as the reason for our pain when the root causes our foolishness. It also holds out hope to us because if our heart is set upon God, we will not rage against him when our foolishness brings its painful fruit. Instead, we will remember that the Lord forgives and the Lord restores and the Lord brings back repentant fools to himself. He does not cast us off when we return to him. This is an important word for us to remember, too, as we begin to think in the coming weeks more directly about our words, our work, our finances, our relationships, various themes we're going to consider from Proverbs. You will make mistakes. You will sin. You will, at times, act like a fool. You will not be perfectly wise on this side of heaven. And that's not the teaching of Proverbs. Rather, the wisdom offered to us is this. God gives new hearts to fools who come to him in faith. The book of Proverbs is not your how-to guide for perfectionism. It is a guidebook for trusting the Lord with all your heart and not leaning on your own understanding. The wisdom is not just how to prevent from how to stop from making foolish choices the wisdom is how to respond in li- to God in light of our indwelling patterns of folly that all of us have in this life the book of proverbs teaches us to receive from God grace through repentance and renewal through his holy spirit as we now on the other side of the cross in the empty tomb fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, our Lord. Before you will ever demonstrate any wise act, wisdom in your actions, you must first embrace the wisdom of God in your heart. It is when our hearts are laid upon God that our lives begin to reflect his wisdom day by day. This is a slow process. This is sanctification. And what is the evidence that wisdom is taking root in your life? You trust Jesus more. You're trusting him more. And slowly but surely, you start to look more and more like him. 
So how do we know that if we're growing in heart wisdom? How do we know? What is the evidence that our hearts are being transformed by God into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ? Well, maybe you remember how at the beginning of this sermon we learned that the Old Testament word includes our minds, our wills, and our entire selves. That actually helps us as we turn the page to the New Testament. When we understand that the Bible speaks of our hearts and minds and wills and totality of a person, we begin to have more clarity when we read something from Paul when he says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. What is the mind of Christ that we are to have? Certainly it's our intellect, but it is certainly more than that. Because the mind we, are ha- we have is demonstrated in our lives through humble service like Christ. Then in Romans 12, we read this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Yes, you have physical bodies. But Paul is talking more about just a physical sacrifice, isn't he? He's talking more than just having better thoughts in our minds, isn't he? This certainly reaches to our affections and our actions. Maybe more famously, you remember the words of Jesus who had this interaction. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment, great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Church, Jesus was not giving us a lesson in the composition of a human. That's not what he's talking about. Rather, what Jesus was saying was what the Lord had given Moses. The greatest command is that we would be wholehearted in our devotion to the Lord. That our minds, souls, bodies, and yes, our hearts would be set upon the God who loves us. Friends, can you see that heart wisdom is humble, not arrogant. It is a heart that resembles Jesus, whose own heart is described in the New Testament when he invites himself to us saying, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It is Christ's very heart to be gentle and lowly. To be humble and to teach us. He says we can learn from him. From his very heart. And just as our hearts describe more than just our affections, Jesus' heart in this verse is not merely his feelings. Strikingly, it's the orientation of his heart towards us. If you haven't read Dane Ortland's book on the heart of Christ, Gentle and Lowly, I highly recommend you get it and put it at the top of your summer reading list. 
The tenderness of the heart of Christ towards us is, is the help for us in our fight against the foolish tendency to wander from the Lord. The tenderness of Jesus' heart towards us is the same tenderness Yahweh was holding out in his calls to, for us to trust him with all of our hearts. <clears throat> Friends, we desire wisdom not because we want more rules, but because we desire more of Christ. We long to be like him as he renews us by his tender mercy and lavish grace. Wisdom is responding to Christ with our whole hearts, and that's the result. The result of that is our hearts begin to re be refashioned and look like his. Before you and I can grow in living wisely in our actions, don't miss this, we must entrust our hearts to the Lord, to His wisdom, His instruction, and His love for us in the face of the Lord Jesus. And the Lord has not left us without a reminder to reorient our hearts to Him. Friends, we come week by week to the Lord's table. The Lord's Supper is an opportunity again for us to trust the Lord. The supper is not magical. We aren't receiving salvation week after week as we come to the table. No, what we have before us, church, is the mysterious and glorious meal that renews us as we remember the God who saved us through the precious blood of His Son. We come forward symbolically abandoning our hopes in our own wisdom and taking the bread and the juice to remember the price of our folly and wickedness, but beyond that, the glorious hope of our Lord Jesus Christ that is sure in Him. To take the supper is to make a declaration. I trust Christ in Him alone. I am not leaning on my own understanding. In this bread and this cup, I am acknowledging His glorious provision for my soul, and I am seeking to live by faith until He comes for me. And as we do this together, we declare this as a church as individual members of a body. It is an individual declaration, and yet it is a communal proclamation. We embrace wisdom. We turn from folly. The supper is a declaration that our hearts belong to the Lord. We rejoice as we wait for Him in hope.